Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by physical therapist, strength coach, and movement specialist, Dr. Matthew Zanis. Dr. Zanis and I dove into a number of topics, including injuries, why they're so prevalent, how we can reduce the risk of them, what the foot and ankle really does for us, the healthcare system as we see it currently, plus a number of other rants that we got on. Whether you are an athlete, a clinician, or a coach, I think you'll find this conversation highly entertaining and valuable. So let's tune in. Matt, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I am doing well, all things considered, you know, shifting and pivoting where necessary in these times, but it's a, it's a fun ride. Just excited to see what each day unfolds with. <laughs> it pretty much is a take one day at a time and see what new changes are coming. Always something new. But nothing wrong with adapting to the times. Um, Maybe we'll just kind of start there, but first I do want you to introduce yourself. Um, We've known each other for quite a while. We have a lot of similarities in how we treat and how we think, but um, who are you? What are you all about? Yeah, it kind of seems like we're on an island sometimes together, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I feel that way. Yeah, especially now. Um, uh, If anybody doesn't know me, my name is Dr. Matthew Zanis. I am a physical therapist, strength conditioning coach, movement expert all things kind of considered within that here out of Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, but I was originally born and raised in a little small town out in Northeast Pennsylvania. So I'm a East coast boy by heart growing up in the coal region. Um, actually grew up in a very predominant baseball family. So this is kind of a region of the, of the country where these, the saying of genetics, geography and opportunity, like really set in forth the trajectory of your life. Yeah, that was me because I was influenced very heavily by my father, who was a collegiate baseball player and um, had me playing from a very early age of four and lasted about 16 years. But I was working really, really hard for something that I just really wasn't all that great at. (laughs) Um, And of course, when you're not really having the motivation or the willpower to do something, you still just bust your ass to get better at it injuries and pain and stuff starts to ensue. So I was that kid that was quote unquote injury prone growing up. Um, I was getting hurt every year, new injuries kind of cropping up. And it really wasn't until I found weight training in high school that this, these things kind of started to shift for me. I, I found that actually moving well and reinforcing those movement patterns with good strength conditioning principles is what actually resolved all these little aches and pains and, and nagging injuries. It's just kind of started to go away. And it's also about that time period that I realized I was a much, much better coach than an athlete and a much better provider uh, than a player. So it, I didn't know it at the time, Dan, but that's kind of where I started to develop my own like practice philosophy. And I took that all the way into my athletic training degree at the University of Pittsburgh and then down to Duke uh, in North Carolina for my uh, PT degree. Um, and now that whole entire philosophy has just kind of been evolving year after year after year um, as I learn more and assimilate more. And that's essentially what my uh, philosophy is rooted in. Uh, working with some of our nation's top Olympic athletes and uh, Navy special warfare guys. So it's, like I said, it's, it's been a fun ride in the present, but it's also been a fun ride from that journey. Oh God, over a decade ago now to kind of where I'm at here in Arizona, where I own and operate my own practice and uh, yeah, living life, loving it. Very cool. I'm curious where, 
how you kind of figured out the moving well concept when you were that young, um, just because so many athletes never figure that out. So many, even coaches and clinicians never truly figure that out. It's just like, Oh, we have another injury. We need to treat that injury. How did that get set like set into you? So, so early. Uh, it was kind of like a uh, spontaneous in nature. Like I almost described it as kind of like a light bulb moment. And it really, like I said, it wasn't until like my junior, senior year where by mind, mind you at this point, I had been through like years of physical therapy. And when I say that, I mean like that standard of care bullshit where you'd walk in there and you know, immediately slap a hot pack on you. Then you got the ultrasound treatment. And then some guy came over and rubbed me out for a little bit. And then I would do some bullshit banded exercises afterwards and be sent on my way. And surprisingly, <laughs> nothing ever really got better in the long term. There was, granted, there was some like, you know, short term fixes here and there. I never really started moving better. And it, like I said, it wasn't until that, that junior, senior year where I found the weight room. And mind you, I had, I had a battle against me because uh, my freshman, sophomore year, I grew up in a time period where they thought that weight training was bad for baseball players. So I had a fight to get into there and it wasn't like uh, until we made these, you know, workouts mandatory football that I was like, Oh shit, I'm getting stronger and I feel better. And it was just kind of like by happenstance where that, where that occurred. And of course that was just kind of like the, the starting point, the, the, the leap pad, so to speak, because you know, like anything else, there were some other mistakes that I made along the way in my movement journey from going from being an athlete into finding um, like a, a bodybuilding-esque aesthetic phase where I did some modeling for a few years. And then through the CrossFit, um, I guess through the CrossFit phase of you know, beating myself up five to six days a week and trying to compete in that. And then eventually um, just wanting to train like an athlete again and, and kind of where I am now um, working on the different um, mobility, I guess, phases that I'm in where I'm trying to go into these freestanding handstands and work on the splits and everything like that. So each one of those phases, though, it's kind of interesting, have been new learning experiences of something that I was like, hmm, this doesn't really work so well for that long until you start to change some things up. And you realize that as humans, we are very, very versatile creatures. And staying into one dogmatic program forever and ever and ever just really isn't a very useful thing for our body. You know, you know what? I, I like to think of myself as a quick learner, but <laughs> over a decade. You know, it is interesting though, because like just thinking about my journey and everything, it's like I ran through college and then it's like from there, I kind of like every three or four years, it's like, oh, I'm going to like find something new or find a new focus. And, and so it has really been this like shift over time and and yes, interests change, but too, it's like you do start realizing certain sports and activities strengthen one area, but then you weaken another, and it is finding this balance of of what's good for your body. Yeah, exactly. Like going from the you know training in, in high school to essentially finding the big bro gym in college where I was like, oh, you know, 10,000 reps of bench press is good for anybody. And, you know, of course they were all fighting for a bigger chest at that time frame. Cause let's be honest, like when it comes to why we do certain things, it really comes down to just two different reasons, right? We want to look better naked to attract somebody and love. We want people to love us. <laughs> That's really what it is. Right. So of course, from the aesthetic standpoint, I made myself very muscle bound. Like I was not immobile, or sorry, I was super immobile. I was not mobile at all. And interestingly enough, that's also the time frame where like all these foot issues that I was dealing with started to kind of unravel. And 
it's interesting too, because I was a catcher for the majority of the time that I played baseball. So I was in cleats most of my childhood and into adolescence and everything. And I was in cleats, but not only that, I was also squatting with my heels up. So like, I tried to find a barbell backs one. I was like, oh, what's this thing called squatting with your heels down? Never been here before. <laughs> <laughs> Weird. Right? And, it's, and it's one of those things too where like, I, you know, I didn't know any better at the time. My parents didn't know any better. They put me in all those big cushiony shoes and you know, expensive custom orthotics, which kind of temporary helped. And, you know, sometimes the Achilles pain would go away. Sometimes it wouldn't. Sometimes my hip issue would go away. Sometimes it wouldn't. Sometimes my one-sided back issues would go away. Sometimes it wouldn't. And once again, I found myself kind of like in this vicious cycle. And it really wasn't until then I got to PT school. <laughs> I realized, oh, the foot is like any other part of the body. Guess what? If you strengthen it and make it move better, all these other things start to kind of go away, all the little nagging aches and pains. And it's, it's fascinating too, because that shit didn't happen overnight. But for whatever reason, I had this in my head that I was going to be persistent with it. So when I get my mind on something, like I'm like a dog with a bone, I'm going to keep chewing it until it's gone type of thing. So over a three-year time span of actually starting to work my foot and correct it and strengthen it and take myself out of the, I was wearing, you remember those Brooks Beast shoes? Yeah. That's what, that's what I was wearing the majority of my, yeah, I know that was terrible. So I was slowly like taking myself out of those, removing the orthotics, going down to just the shoe and then eventually working into New Balance Minimus for my very first um, kind of minimalist type of a shoe. And over a three year time span, I went from a size 12 and a half to a 10 and a half. So I essentially, I guess, shrunk my foot, but what it looked like is my foot went from not from being like a flat flipper where it turned out and collapsed in to regaining some of that arch and pulling everything back together. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It was fascinating. And it wasn't like until later on that I realized that like I'm trying to like buy new pairs of shoes. I'm like, well, these are big, like what's happening? Like, so yeah. And then I uh, realized that, yeah, I just strengthened my foot up and then it, it started moving better. And then all those like, so whenever we see like these one-sided issues in the body, it's like the spiraling pathway from the foot and they kind of just started to, to disappear and melt away. I definitely did not have the loss of shoe size. <laughs> I switched to strengthening my foot, but <laughs> whatever works. You know, it's really, it's really funny because my whole entire life I was, let's be honest, like guys, we like having our ego stroked. Okay. So when people compliment me, compliment me on my muscles, I was like, Oh yeah blow up the head a little bit, you know, kind of peacock, bang my chest, the whole nine yards. The minute, the day that I started getting compliments on my feet being muscular, I was like, oh, I'm, I won now. I've made it. I finally did it. <laughs> my feet have grown muscles. This is fantastic. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Never thought I would say it, but yeah, Best you got one. there. <laughs> you know, the process you went through on that, first off, I'm rather amazed that you figured out the foot thing in PT school because most people never figure that out. Many clinicians never figure that out. I definitely didn't figure that out until I started playing around with fibrums. Um, I went straight. <laughs> yes. I went straight from stability shoes with orthotics to fibrums. Like that was my, you just, you just made the leap. You're like, yeah, fuck it. We're just going to go full bore into this thing. Pretty much. This is how we experiment <laughs> on myself. <laughs> um, but like most people get stuck into that same cycle you were in as far as like mm -hmm. the orthotics, the shoes, like it's just, let's treat the symptoms of what's going on and cover up everything rather than actually like figuring out the source of what the issue is. 
Yeah, we uh, we get stuck, I think, in this in this sense of normalcy, right? And that sense of normalcy is like I think it's a unique perception based on the individual. Like like your sense of normalcy is way different than mine, versus you know an NFL player versus an Olympic track athlete you know, versus a soccer mom here in Arizona, and it's this sense of normalcy was where our brain essentially establishes a set point of balance, I believe. And most of us just kind of go through life and we never experience anything different. Then what happens is we start developing these really deep ruts for ourselves until we can't take it anymore. And we know that like every single tissue in our body has a set point, a threshold uh, for stress and for load. And what happens is when we cross that threshold, all of a sudden we think that there's like something catastrophically wrong with us. Um, but in reality, it's just information being sent by our brain to bring awareness to the area and say, hey, we need kind of like, we should change something up. I, I think we need to move a little bit differently here or, or change the way that we're attacking this workout or change the way that the load that we're using. Or maybe we need to squat a little bit differently for a little bit of time and then finally work back into our old patterns. And I think the problem is that never, no, a lot of people don't ever, aren't given the opportunity to explore these different movement patterns and it's, it's interesting to me too is because i'll i purposely put people in the positions where i know they're going to fail and that's very very intentional um and people react differently like you'll get some people who go into these positions are like oh that hurts i can't do it right when in reality you're just stimulating new tissues that haven't been stimulated before and your brain is just like, hmm, this is new. Maybe I like it, maybe I don't. I'm kind of undecided right now. And it isn't until you start exploring it more and, and deeper that you start to realize, oh, we're just, we're just taking our body to positions that it hasn't, hasn't been into for a very long time. And now we've given the opportunity to create this new sense of normalcy, a new balance, a new set point. Instead of just kind of like being stuck on one end of the spectrum, we now have the ability to go to the other side. And now we're going to be a little more balanced finding that set point that's kind of like in the middle. It's amazing how we can let ourselves and talk about this in life too, but life right. and body movement, we get very complacent and stagnant in the way mm. that we move. It's like we lose the end ranges of shoulder motion, of hip motion, of foot and ankle mobility and strength. And because we just kind of like, well, this is my life that I live. I go move in these ranges that I need to move in and I don't need to move in these other ranges. And like, I always love the conversation with people when it's like, well, I can't, like, I can't do a normal squat hips below knees and keep my knees down. I'm whatever years old and I shouldn't be able to. And then I always bring up the, well, look at the like Asian and the rice patty in their nineties. Like they're still doing it. Yes, you can. And, and we just get sent these ideas of, we shouldn't, I shouldn't in quotes, be able to do this motion because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I, I think we get really comfortable in certain positions. And the minute we get pushed outside of our comfort zone, we don't like it. But I mean, it, it's one of those things where our, as humans, we're really fucking lazy, right? So we're always, we're like water. We're always going to find that path of least resistance. And we're going to try and move in a way that is the most, I guess, the most perceived as being efficient, right? So the, the, the movement patterns that cost the le least amount of energy. And with the conveniences of life, right, we've cushioned our asses with chairs that we sit on. We've cushioned our feet with all these big moon shoes like the Hoka's, which I think should just be burned and go straight to hell. Those are awful. Um, yeah, goddamn. If I, oh, I, I really need to just do like, you and I should just do like a rant podcast on these shoes. Ooh, um, let's do it. 
yeah, I think that'd be a lot of fun. Let's plan it. Uh, but then also, like, you think about it, we lay in very comfortable, tempurpedic, like, cushion top beds to sleep at night, too. So we've essentially, like, created this pressure void environment for ourselves. Now, here's the irony part. And this is where it's like, am I batshit crazy or is this like just reality? Like we've created this pressure void environment and then what do we do? We hire people like massage therapists, chiropractors, and we buy things like foam rollers and lacrosse balls to add pressure back into the system. Like why are we going backwards with things? Are we not really aware that this is occurring? I had this like epiphany moment and I, jumped on Instagram. This was like months ago and I just kind of put it out there and like nobody responded to it. I was like, hmm, maybe, maybe it is just me. Maybe I am kind of <laughs> crazy with, with all this, but it's, it, it just like, you know, we're talking right now, we're using the English language. Our cells speak in load. That's the language of the cells. And they will adapt to whatever type of stimulus, whatever type of load we put them through. So when we sit for six to eight hours a day and our hips never pass 90 degrees and you try to squat and like do it like Rich Froning does in the CrossFit games, what are you going to expect? Your body hasn't adapted the ability to do that yet. However, here's the part where I get really frustrated is that we decide that that movement pattern, that movement standard is something that we need to do right it's something that we should be doing so we push ourselves we force ourselves into these positions that we can't yet control that our brain is not ready for then we experience pain or discomfort and all of a sudden we're we're injured we're hurt and we go down this fucking rabbit hole of like oh well i need more mobility here i need somebody to massage this out of me or i need somebody to needle me or i need these crazy fancy expensive orthotics to allow me to squat better or wait let's just put our put our ankles into these platform shoes called olympic weightlifting shoes when you've been doing crossfit for six months or olympic weightlifting for six months just to get you into a good position so now these are all these like band-aid fixes mm -hmm. that we these temporary fixes that we put into our bodies we never ever ever establish permanent control of how to actually move our body like if you look at this whole this whole pyramid scheme, right? We look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Well, if you look at these movement needs, so to speak, a lot of people put strength down there in the bottom, which I 100% agree with. Like strength is definitely down there. Like stronger humans are hard to kill. Um, Mark Ripito, God love you. Like that's his thing. I totally agree with this. Sometimes we kind of take it out of context, but because um, I know some pretty strong motherfuckers that are terrible movers. But the point of it is, is that I think we should have like a very foundational set of human movement skills at the bottom first that then creates the bandwidth for us to build up on top of it instead of just trying to go after that power that speed that agility all the sports specificity stuff and then have like a house of cards come crumbling down on top of us and we can't ever figure out what the problem is to begin with and we try and narrow the focus all oh, it must be this movement or must be that movement or must be this amount of load that i can't do no you just you're moving like an asshole like let's let's go back and try and figure out where your limitations are and give you an appropriate plan to build the limitations oh but guess what it's not going to happen overnight so you know what i mean like this is where the education piece comes into where hey you got to devote some time to this like you want to move better like let's move better but let's also stay committed to the effort as well sorry that was like a big old kind of rant <laughs> it's so true though like yeah People just want this mobility and this position to happen overnight, but one, you didn't get there in a day. 
like that you didn't cause this problem today and two how many days do you commit to getting stronger so you can get stronger like if you don't commit to moving better on a regular basis right. you're not going to move better like simple as that and then all of a sudden people get stronger and what happens we hit a plateau yep and then we're like well i need to do the schmola program to get stronger <laughs> So like, no, maybe you just need to open up more areas of your hips so you can get more neural recruitment in and around to those muscles and expose more muscle fibers to the load you're trying to put through, put into them. And guess what? Strength opens up pretty quickly. I had a guy that I was just working with out of, um, well, he was in West Virginia, moved to Kentucky. I don't know if that's like, we consider that a lateral move. Um, I'm sure he would <laughs> maybe take offense to that. But uh, anyway, I had him on a, a almost almost eight months worth of a program where we did not do any bilateral squatting. It was just different variations and different tempos and protocols for single leg stuff. He goes to his first back squat session. I had him establish as a five rep max. Eight months later, excuse me. And he blew his old numbers out of the water. After taking a break of back squatting with six months, six to eight months. And I didn't, put any magic into the programming that I was giving him. It was just the fact that one, he gave that nervous, that nervous system pattern a break for one. And then two, his hip range of motion skyrocketed. Like it exploded how, how mobile his hips were through doing this like slow eccentric and isometric work in a single leg pattern. You take that over into the back squat and the brain's like, wow, this is like the NOS system, man. We got like so much we could work with here. No wonder you're, you're, performance improves you know <laughs> yeah get your proper positions get more power yeah, yeah. magic like this isn't a sprint right i think that's where we get lost mm -hmm. we want where we uh we want a lot of this instant gratification and it's it's in all areas of life um I, i'm there too there are certain things that i'm trying to, to achieve and get through where i'm like well, i want it now or i want it yesterday but in reality like if you can delay that gratification and actually put in the effort, put in the time and really invest into the stuff that is going to pay off huge dividends in the long term. That's where you're truly going to see, see the progress. And it, it's just like me, like I was out here and I'm in the home gym this past week. I haven't power cleaned in two years. I haven't power cleaned in two years. And I had one of my coach buddies over and he wanted to power clean day. I'm like, okay, sure. Let's give it a shot. Why not? I did a hang power clean triple for 225. Haven't not ever touched it in two years. But what I've been doing the entire time is working on other facets of my quote unquote athleticism or my movement skills, my movement literacy. And that had translation and carryover into these other skills as well. So you're saying Am I gonna be power cleaning when I get out of my boot. <laughs> what was that about your boot? So you're saying there's a chance when I get out of my boot that I won't lose everything. Well, and like I see you on Instagram, we, we could probably dive into this topic because your whole boot situation is fascinating to me too. Uh, but we do see like a 30% neurological carryover from working the opposite extremity into the quote unquote injured or unusable ext extremity as well. And I experienced a similar thing. Um, this is like two years ago now. I tore the meniscus in my left knee, the medial one, on a trip with the Olympics. And <laughs> this is a great story. So uh, I was we're getting ready to go back to the airport and I'm like the biggest guy there. And they sent a 
10 person passenger van for 14 of us plus sporting equipment plus all my pt equipment and luggage a whole nine yards so i'm playing that sick game of tetris trying to put everything in there nice and neatly and i'm the last person to get in i'm stepping over one of my athletes and i go to put my foot down on the seat cushion to squat into my seat for this 20 minute bus ride and my left foot gets caught in between two seat cushions as i'm going into knee flexion so i'm plantar flexed going into knee flexion can't get any rotation on my tibia pop pop <laughs> there it goes. I knew exactly what it was. And you know, there's this quick little trick that if you try and straighten your knee really hard and fast, that you can sometimes create some negative pressure to be able to pull that meniscus piece back in. Didn't work for me. I just got searing anterior joint line pain and I'm just sitting there going, fuck. And I didn't say a word. I had my foot up actually on the back seat of the driver. So I'm like right behind the driver. And this was actually in Mexico in Guadalajara. And he's like trying to talk to me. I'm assuming he was trying to tell me to put my foot down, but I wasn't moving at this point. So I'm sitting there and I'm wearing skinny jeans too. And I'm watching the swelling start to push out into the denim. I'm like, oh, this, is, this isn't good. Um, so we get to the airport and everybody gets off the bus. All the equipment gets out. I go to take a step to get out and walk myself into the airport. And I fall flat on my face. <laughs> Do you know how humbling it is to be the PT? The guy that's supposed to be taking care of everybody else has to be carried through the freaking airport by the coaches. <laughs> super humbling. Super, super humbling. And there I am, like, thank God I have an, like an exit row um, aisle seat. And I'm telling the stewardesses, I'm like, listen, this is what just happened. Foot is going to be outside in the aisle the entire time, just so you know. If you need to get by, please tap me on the shoulder. I will gladly move my leg in. Uh, but the whole, the whole point of the story was the very next day, I was back in the gym squatting on it, right? Now, it didn't look like, you know, a 400-pound back squat, but I was doing different things like Spanish squats and single-leg squats on my right side using a TRX, and I got a lot of that neurological carryover, and in a few weeks, I was able to put some weight through and then start some slow loading and progress myself. That was in November all the way through February to where I started running again, right? But it's just, it's just having the ability to – all right, this is the situation. Let's own it. Let's take the responsibility and let's do what's necessary to get it back. Because if there, anybody else would look at that, they'd be like, oh, go get an MRI, find out what it shows. Oh, well, no shit. It's going to show a torn meniscus. Um, by the way, I probably have already had it there being a catcher for as long as I have been. And what they're going to do then, oh, we're going to put you in a straight leg cast for six weeks. And then we're going to probably do surgery. So now we're looking at like this three-month time span where I'm not doing shit all. Right. Instead, I'm just going to take, the, take it into my own hands and get the necessary load into it because we know those knee surgeries are actually worthless, completely worthless now. And uh, yeah, completely rehab myself from not being able to walk to now I'm power cleaning 225, catching heavy load dynamically and no problems in the knee. Now, the key though is that that took damn near a year to get back to being myself again. Uh, but that, that's just that's the nature of this stuff, right? Like we know we can make some pretty quick neurological changes in like two to three or four weeks, mm -hmm. but the true strength gains are going to take eight to 12 and structural changes are really going to take those 14, 16, 18 weeks up to it, you know, eight months to a year to see connective tissue change over in the body. That's, I can't fast forward that for anybody. That's where, like I said, a lot of this education piece like you and I do very, very well is, Hey, listen, this is the game plan. This is what it's going to take. Like, are you signing up for this? Yes or no? 
right? Because it's yeah. an equal energetic exchange. Like we got to be in this together. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to see failures on both ends, and that doesn't make either of us happy. Yeah, absolutely. I was hoping you're going to share that story, and if you weren't, I was going to dive into like somehow get. Well, you we to we it. both know that there's actually another part of that story that I won't disclose on air. <laughs> if you want to hear the other part of the story, by all means, send me a direct message. I'd be happy to tell you it. It's, it's a good one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. We're going to leave a cliffhanger for people. There we <laughs> go. There we go. made it this far. Yeah, so what's the deal with your foot now? Uh, Liz Frank's brain? Status, up, status update. Oh, status update? Yeah. Uh, I had PRP uh, last Friday which hurt like a bitch. <laughs> they never feel good. Prolo's not bad. PRP's not happy. Um, <laughs> so in the booth for two more weeks, I go back on the 17th. So I think then we'll have me tested out of the boot. It sounded like it was going to be like six weeks and then we'll start testing it. So hopefully. Yeah. Well, that's what I like about the PRP is like you get some really great, you know, chemical mediators in there. You get the the, the factors that the growth factors that are needed to start to differentiate the cells and, and really spur and catalyze that healing process. And then like we talked about before too, the, the cells language is load. So we know that we need to get some good loading into there once it all kind of like the swelling calms down and um, you're able to, to move through it again, because you had a Liz Frank injury from what we found out from the diagnostic was it the ultrasound that you did? Ultrasound, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which when you when you came to see me and we talked for a little bit, I'm like, I think it's a Liz Frank injury. I like, was like, no, I haven't totally ruled that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, that's it's just great confirmation. Like, you know, like oh, our diagnostic skills are pretty good as PTs, right? Um, <laughs> but interestingly enough, too, like I would be doing exactly what you're doing right now. I would be outsourcing my care to somebody else because. <laughs> like, let's be honest, we're not objective enough with our own bodies. And I would like, you know, and I went to see some other PT friends of mine for my knee just to get some extra opinions on it. Like that's, and strength coaches actually too. Um, I do trust a lot of strength coaches in the area. And uh, I let them kind of give me their opinion on it and then formulated it into what needed to be done. Um, but same thing with you, like you were having a really hard time transitioning from that plantar flexion and dorsiflexion and vice versa in the closed chain. I'm like, that's the Liz Frank joint's job is to like transmit that <laughs> load. Um, so this is likely what's going on. And we started off with some pretty basic stuff as well. And it's just like, it's tough with that joint because, you know, like you can put some pretty decent static load through it and be okay. But the minute you start putting the dynamic effort, that dynamic load into it, where it has to now absorb the force and transmit it, AKA, running right <laughs> which we know that you like doing a lot of it it's it's tough it's tricky and uh, yes there's probably some micro damage going on in there but then your nervous system was like fucking stop this already <laughs> we've had enough like it's time to it's time to give this little guy a rest and like let him solidify and then start getting into uh some more some more of that like static strengthening work and then eventually start jumping rope would probably be a great place for you to go initially um, to start, you know, testing it out, I guess, so to speak. But yeah, you're a, you've had a wild ride with it so far. It's been, it's been fun to watch. I have, and I've been getting out of it. I've been taking off the boot once a day in order to just kind of go through not any aggressive rehab exercises, but at least enough just to get that foot moving a bit, get the toes moving and, and just kind of make sure the muscle memory 
holes and the muscles yeah. aren't completely atrophied by the time I'm out of it. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've been thinking about like working back and just knowing I'll need to be patient with it. And I have a return to running program I run for clients. So I'm just going to use that to kind of transition back. And from Absolutely there, it's preach. just not freaking myself out, start jumping again. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> going through that whole process. And, and just in case anybody's not familiar with what this Liz Frank joint does, if you think of a wheelbarrow, like the wheelbarrow is essentially your transverse arch. So that area between your big toe knuckle and your fifth toe knuckle, that's really like, it's, it's called a class two lever. It's how we produce a lot of force when we do really anything athletic whatsoever. But it's also needed for just the push off phase of walking and gait. Well, that Liz Frank joint is what I kind of akin to the handles of the wheelbarrow. And if you break a handle off, it doesn't matter how much force you can produce through, you're, you're missing your contact point, right? You're missing that transition area. So it's, it's something where it's like, yeah, I don't doubt you're plenty. I know you're plenty strong. Like that's how I introduced you to my naturopath friend. It was like, she's a beast. Like she'll kick <laughs> both of our asses. Uh, so I know you're plenty, plenty strong, but when you break that handle off the wheelbarrow, there ain't nothing you can do about it until that thing gets fixed. So. That's an analogy right there. You're on the right track, though. You're <laughs> on the right track. <laughs> let's dive, since we've transitioned to my foot injury and the foot a little bit, let's go a little bit deeper into that because we've kind of brushed the surface of how important that foot and ankle is with our movements. But I really want to dive into that deeper as far as like why we are so passionate about strengthening the foot and ankle, why we hate shoes so much and just like why this is so important to the human body and how we move. Yeah. I, I, I see it as being two different pillars to this. And, and this is why you and I get along really well. It's because we understand that the foot and the ankle is the start of the whole entire connect chain. It literally transmits every single piece of information to your brain but then also the energy up through the knee and the hip and the pelvis and spine and like you think of a baseball pitcher they're planting in their left leg to be able to throw the ball in their right hand like all that energy is being transmitted from the foot into doing literally anything that we want to do so if we have really good functioning feet we tend to see a lot of these problems just kind of be non-existent however when our feet are functioning like more like pegs than feet now all we're doing is our brain's like, well, we can't really produce any torque out of our feet and we don't know how that it's communicating from the foot to the hip. So we're just going to just, we're going to just try and mimic whatever that our brain thinks is the correct pattern, but we're just going to sink it to whatever type of range of motion that we have. And this is where you start to see a lot of these plateaus develop too, is because the human body kind of works like a nautilus shell. And I've been racking my freaking brain and maybe you can actually come to the, the term of what this actually is. So in mathematics, there is a term for that Nautilus shell phenomenon, the spiraling phenomenon, where it's like exponential, um, like an exponential al algorithm. I'm not a math guy. I swear they didn't teach us math at Duke. Uh, but anyway, this is how every piece of nature functions. And the human body is, is not, oh, you know what I'm talking about? I do. Yeah, so the human body functions just like it in these spiraling type of pathways. And that needs to happen from the ground up. It needs to happen from the foot. It's like wringing out a towel, right? So you get this twisting phenomenon. And what, what kind of happened to my knee is I was missing some of this twisting that was occurring in the tibia, right? So you see these, you see these equal and opposite kind of twisting, spiraling actions occurring up the entire chain, which needs to be transmitted from the foot. And if the foot is in nothing but shoes all day long and we're not exposing it to really much of anything and all we walk on our flat surfaces like concrete, 
the toes get, instead of being splayed apart, get stuck together. And the way this kind of works is, is like muscles are really fucking stupid. They only function based on the position of the joints and the bones. So if our metatarsals are squished together, I know I'm like holding up this sign right now that <laughs> I think that this was part of the Boy Scouts. I was a Boy Scout for, I think Weeblows is more like this. Anyway, uh, so I'm holding up my forefinger straight towards the ceiling and they're squished together. <laughs> this does a couple of different things, right? So it squishes all those nice little foot intrinsic muscles together and they can't work. So the, the, the fibers of the muscle, the cross bridging are so shortened, they don't know how to contract because they can't lengthen. Right? So the way that you just can start getting better function of the foot altogether is give those metatarsals some time to move and spread apart and splay. And over time, I, I give, tell people to wear toe spreaders all the time with this. Cheap little things on Amazon you can get, no problem, for like seven bucks. And that will start allowing your muscles to actually function the way that they, they need to. Like we don't need to go into all these like crazy foot exercises. Like just let your foot splay apart and be a normal fucking human. Like just start walking like that. And you'll see a lot of great things um, start to happen. But along the same lines too, the second pillar um, that we're after is the sensory component, right? So with the toes being squished together, this impacts our brain's image of the foot. All right, so there's a little thing called the homunculus, right? So it just means in Latin, like little man. So it's our brain's representation of every single part of our body. And there's no, um, it's no surprise why areas like our eyes, our lips, our nose, our mouth, our hands have a very, very large representation in this brain map because we use them every day. We get a lot of sensory stimulation through them. We can see them. We, we can feel ourselves using them. Whereas areas like our foot have a smaller representation. Now, and, and like our low back and our hip and areas like that. And it's interesting too, like we, we've measured this. We know that the foot has a small representation, but is it because we keep them in shoes all day long and we're not using them? Or is this because it's, it's naturally supposed to be like that? I would love, love, love to see, like have like generations of people who are completely barefoot and see if that representation, that percentage is a lot higher. Because um, if you can't paint with your feet, then you should probably try. Because uh, <laughs> what we know is like people that are missing upper extremities, that the brain rewires, it will kind of circumvent and start to redirect neural patterns. And these people that have no hands, and I say like painting with their feet, like doing anything with their feet, these brain maps are a lot larger, they're a lot clearer, right? So we can, we can get this shift to happen. And I, I, when we get that, when we have a, a sharper image in the brain, things start to work better, okay? So we have to move better. And the fact that you can get your feet barefoot and expose them to different types of sensory stimuli, whether it be grass, gravel, concrete, marble, floor, hardwood, like it doesn't really matter. You're gonna be starting to get better information, being nutritious information, being sent to the brain and making those maps a lot clearer and a lot sharper. And a lot of, like I said, a lot of good things really, really start to happen like that. I think a lot of these injuries and these aches and pains that we're seeing are really driven from the foot but it's also because they're environmentally driven. Like we talked about, we keep them in shoes all day long or socks and never allow them to actually move and, and, and actually experience um, different sensory stimuli and different vibratory forces. So in reality, a lot of these problems are like a low vibration problem. We aren't getting the information um, into the system. So of course, all these, the brains freak out and we start to overload tissues that are really don't have no need to be overloaded. That was a lot. No. <laughs> I wanted to go somewhere with that. And then I was just trying to think how to. Sorry, I talk too much. You could just cut me off. I won't get offended by it. Oh, no. I love the things you say. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I wanted to go with that. Look at your heartstrings. 
<laughs> like even thinking too of like injuring yourself in a different way when we're barefoot and that can actually feel the ground like we can respond to things easier the taller like there's actual research behind it the taller more built up your shoe is the more likely you are to sprain your ankle because you don't have that response that sensory response of what's going on underneath your foot to react to it can, can we can we jump off of that into something that's really a big pet peeve of mine? Of course, let's do it. Are, can you tell me your thoughts on Bosu balls and Airx pads, please? <laughs> <laughs> I would I would I would love to hear your opinion on them before I ran. <laughs> oh God! Uh. <laughs> because that was my uh, that was my research thesis at Duke was on the the risk of re-injury following initial injury and focusing on the foot and the ankle. So you can kind of see where this, this pattern has been evolving. What's really, um, so it's interesting that I say that. So my research was looking at how wearing an ankle brace affects the movement at the knee with perturbations. What did you find? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it affects it in a negative way. It changes the muscle pattern firing around the knee. So you lose that protective response essentially. Shocker. And actually right? take up increased forces or increased so motion. So we, we shut down the muscles through an external support system just like an orthotic works by the way people like orthotic shut down the natural foot intrinsic muscles from working they take a vacation and we wonder why we aren't getting the natural responses natural protective mechanisms that the body and the brain have adapted and evolved over how many thousands of years we just shut them down it's yeah. amazing and that's so it's interesting some of the research that we were doing was the effect of so i remember i told you that we're looking at the, the rate of re-injury following an initial ankle sprain. And we found that it was like 70% more likely to re-sprain the ankle. And a lot of the protocols out there, this was back in 2011, 12 when we were doing this, were done on rehabilitating the ankle, ankle through the means of instability training. Okay. And what we mean by that is putting people on fucking BOSU balls and Eric's pads and unstable surfaces. And what it came down to with a lot of the research we were looking at is that after six weeks of training on these types of surfaces, you are no more protected from respraining the ankle than where when you started. And there's a reason why. These types of unstable surfaces or, uh, will train the larger reactive muscles. So like the posterior tibialis, the everters, the calves. But that's not enough to prevent recurrent ankle sprains. You actually need to train the mechanoreceptors found in the bottom of the foot. And these are these sensory organelles that detect all this information to be able to send it up to the rest of the brain to be able to make the right corrections when we're moving. So yes, standing on a BOSU ball with Hoka shoes on is not helping you at all. Not even in the slightest bit. It may give you some joint position sense, Maybe some improvements in that, but it's not going to prevent you from getting hurt. And like, let's be clear, like we never really prevent injury. We can sure as hell reduce the risk of it. So I'm all about efficiency and effectiveness. If I'm going to be the most efficient, I'm going to put somebody on a stable surface that maybe has different tactile stimuli to it, right? So maybe it's a turf, maybe it's rubber flooring, uh, maybe it's hardwood, maybe like a basketball court. It's all going to send different information up there. And now we start training instability by using other constraints. And these other constraints can be, maybe we're closing the eyes. Maybe we're having the eyes track something, side to side, up, down, different diagonal patterns. I love using cognitive tasks as well, like having people, athletes try and solve problems 
-hmm. while standing on one leg as well as another great place to do it. And then vestibular input, imports, inputs. So changing the way those little canals in the ears work by turning the head and they can look up, down, left, right, all these different diagonals. That's where we see a lot of the improvements in one joint position sense for sure, but then also being able to sense from proprioceptive standpoint, improving your kinesthetic awareness, and then um, developing more of that, that sensory input that allows us to be able to, it's a term called elastic energy return. So being able to efficiently, there's that word again, being able to efficiently transmit the energy from the ground through the rest of the body. So that's kind of, that's like the end all be all. I mean, if I see one more, and listen, I see this in the highest levels of sports occurring. So it's still happening despite all this research. So I don't know how we push this message forward in a more clear manner. But for example, I saw, I think this was Cam Newton, who, uh, did he get sent to the Patriots? Yes. Yeah. He had, right. Last I heard, he, so, hadn't had, or he hadn't had his physical yet, but that was like a week ago and I haven't heard anything since. All right, so we've got an already injury-prone athlete, right? <laughs> he's, he's right along the lines Very of much. like uh, RG3 which is another, <laughs> God, man, we have some PTs and strength coaches that fucked his career, if I'm being completely honest. Oh, like, yeah. Terrible. Anyway, um, so I'm seeing this video of Cam Newton doing essentially a single leg balance task on a BOSU ball while lifting his opposite hip up to his chest. And what they were focusing on was the isometric hold of the hip which I, I'm love, I'm all for it. The coach actually put a big chain around the top of his thigh too to make it harder for him to hold the hip up. I'm like, I love that, but what is happening down here and why? Do you not think that we might get better recruitment out of the actual purpose of the intention of the exercise of working his hip flexor isometric strength if you were off the fucking unstable surface? When is this guy ever going to be coming in contact with an unstable surface? And not to mention, he's in some cushiony shoes. I'm sure they were sponsors, but it's still, it's still like, if we're really trying to do what's best for the individual, what's best for the athlete, like, let's do our due diligence. Let's take some time. Let's look at the research and let's actually apply it. <laughs> like, come on now. Like, we argue all the time about like research doesn't show us, you know, it's 10 years behind the application and all that. It's like, well, let's start using some of this stuff and start thinking outside the box and using our brains to actually pick up pattern recognition of movement and start making real change. Like screw the research if it's not catching up to where we're at now, but then also don't be afraid to apply your own novel thoughts to it at the same time. So I don't know, that stuff just gets me kind of like heated. Like here we are, these guys are getting paid millions of dollars and we're literally hamstringing them. Like, Well, and I mean, unfortunately it, it's, kind of why we're having this conversation that we are in general you and i today and why we've talked in the past that coaches clinicians like everyone's stuck in their ways that they learned when they got out of school or maybe their first job and and very rarely are they looking to progress that and kind of you know test the norms yeah we get we, we talked about our body getting stuck in a sense of normalcy i think professionally we do we do as well oh absolutely right so we still, okay, so we get clinicians that are trained to a doctoral level degree, right? If that was the end all be all to doing all this rehabilitation and preventing injury and the whole nine yards, why are we still having instances of low back pain skyrocketing? Why are 16, 18 year old girls still seeing more ACL tears than ever, right? Why are shoulder, is shoulder pain 
one of the most prevalent types of pain in the common like gym goer community. Yeah. Like if we were really doing stuff right, we wouldn't be seeing this. But that's the problem is you have the majority of people that are like, nope, I checked the box. I'm good. I got my doctoral degree. I know it all. Right? You just pay me a hundred grand a year. I deserve it. It's like this entitlement factor. Like I was once on a Facebook group for DPT students and you got these students coming out being like, why am I not making $90,000, $100,000 a year? I'm like, shit, bro. What, what makes you think you're worth it? Like, what have you proven? <laughs> right? Like, you have to be able to create value and create worth. You don't deserve a fucking thing. You know, and I think I mean, that's like, I can't. <laughs> so I, I, there's something that I really encourage people to look up. It's called the seven levels of awareness. And this is very, very... Uh, poignant for especially for today's time with everything going on and how kind of gullible we are towards the media and um, watching the news and making decisions and our thought process being molded off of what we're being told. Well, of these seven levels of awareness, of awareness, pe majority of people, the masses are stuck at level two. 75, 80% are stuck at level two. Oh, wow. There's five other levels of awareness. And I think that's where a lot of the a lot of the clinicians in our in our profession and, and mind you i love our profession right i love the strength and conditioning community i love the rehabilitation community like there's a lot of a lot of really great things that we can do if we start working together with a lot of this stuff um and start propelling the profession forward but we got to be better like we really have got to be better and, and move on from all this old dogmatic these dogmatic teachings like what you were taught in school just allowed you to pass a board exam and likely not kill somebody like that's a great place to start but there are <laughs> way more places that we can go with all this and like i think we should all be continual learners but that's i think what kind of sets you and i apart with a lot of things is we're not afraid to ask questions like we're not afraid to ask the whys and understand that hey at this time and place we may not be good enough but like we talked about before if i'm still doing the same things i'm doing today that i'm like or same thing i'm doing like five years from now that i'm doing today i've lost like I did something wrong. Like what I'm doing next year is likely going to look different than what I'm doing now. My thought processes are going to look different. My clinical decision skills are going to look different. My rationalization all going to look different. And that's okay. That's a sign of progress as well. Versus being stuck in that sense of normalcy and going around the hamster wheel and just collecting your paycheck and never really pushing yourself. You get stuck in that comfort zone. Right? And it's it, like I said, the human body does it professionally we do it and i think like socially and with relationships we do the same thing as well like i've been there before i was in a comfortable i guess relationship <laughs> look good on paper but we know we both know how well that turned we've out talked, like we've talked about that <laughs> like it's 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 something it's like i call it my waking up moment right so i kind of woke up during that time period going through my divorce and uh, started to essentially look at who i was as, as an individual as a person and my purpose and my values in life and uh, you did the same thing but that it it, it propels for not only the, like the relationship side of things and your personal side of things but it, it coincides and transfers very nicely into your professionalism as well yeah. once you start making decisions and having clarity over who it is that you are and the purpose that you're trying to achieve and the impact that you're trying to have not only in, the, in this life but then with other people as well you know, kind of went, we went esoteric there <laughs> hey i'm okay with that <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! And can the rants continue? That's I'm sure we could. <laughs> that's the question. I'm sure we could, and I'm sure we'll do 
more of these later. I would love to. This has been one of the most fun podcasts I've done in a very long time. This is awesome. great. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you're holding space for me and just like giving me permission to just, yeah, he's just going to go off the deep end. We're just going to let him go. <laughs> <laughs> well, the best kind of interviews. I love it. <laughs> well, you don't mind. Heard, um, I got on, this was probably about a year and a half ago. Um, I got on one of the guys from the Foot Collective. And oh, him nice. and I, like, we like talked about the foot stuff, and then we just like went off on the healthcare system for a while. It was entertaining. Uh, I mean, we can go off on what the healthcare system is doing right now, but that could be a whole entire podcast in and of itself, man. Yeah. Been, it it amazes me. Like we've never in our history have quarantined healthy people, oh. and this is driving me up the wall. And there was um, a guy. He's actually a Nobel laureate in mathematics out of Stanford. I forget his name right now. It's amazing that you remember those details, though. <laughs> and anyway, he crunched the numbers and all this stuff, like the, the statistics side of things. This thing is no worse than a level two influenza breakout. Stuff yeah. that we experienced two years ago, right? Like, so if if <laughs> if our government or health professionals are actually using the numbers and statistics appropriately, we will be in this mess that we're in. We'll be shutting down the economy with everything. Like, and let, let, let's be honest with it, with this whole entire scenario is it's not, it's a war of attrition right now. It's not a matter of whether or not you're gonna come in contact with it. It's a matter of when. Yeah. Now there's no surprise that the U S is seeing a lot of cases with it. Right. Why? Well, we are one of the most unhealthy countries in the world. We've got high levels of obesity. We've got high levels of comorbidities. We've got high levels of sedentary people mm -hmm. in this country. Yeah, your immune system's probably not up to par, right? So instead of worrying about wearing a mask, which we know is ineffective, and anybody that wants to debate me on this, I'm more than happy to because there's called, the only thing called data where the best mask of these N95s filter up to 0.3 millimeters. This virus is on average 0.16. I mean, that's a mic drop scenario right there. So these masks are completely ineffective. Everything is politicized. So instead of worrying about having to wear masks or trying to wait for a fucking vaccine that is going to be at best 70% effective, mind you, we have a 0.04% mortality rate here in Arizona. So why we're worried about the climate cases is beyond me. This means more people are actually becoming immune to it, which is a great sign. And it, instead of worrying about all these things, why don't you look at your lifestyle and actually look at these lifestyle choices that you're making and fix them like move more eat better like these are all things that we know boost immunity and then what do we do here we shut down the gyms i mean granted there are people like you and i that who have the wherewithal to and the motivation to do what we need to do on our own and find way creative ways to move our bodies and exercise and train but a lot of people like going to the gym that's their thing right that's what's keeping them healthy it's, it's absolutely amazing that we still make these decisions. And like, I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any means. I'm also not an idiot. Like yeah. when stuff starts to kind of come together like this, you're like, hmm, it makes you think like what exactly is going on under, underneath the veil that, that we're kind of being told here. So anyway, I mean, I don't want to, you know, <laughs> always, but something that just came to mind and I'm on the same thought process that you are around this whole thing. Um, but something I hadn't thought of when it comes to the numbers is, when we're looking at this, because like you said, we're all going to come in contact with it. Mm -hmm. It's no different than the cold and the flu. During flu season, we're all in contact with it at some point in time. I'm curious on like 
if you start getting down to it, like the people who have tested positive and have had symptoms, how many of those people typically get the flu every year? Right. Versus people are asymptomatic, how people, how many of them don't get the flu every year? You know, exactly. and seeing because that that would definitely like follow that. It would show if there's trends there as far as the immunity factor. Well, and here's the thing: this research study literally just got published not too long ago, where they had an asymptomatic individual, so somebody with the virus that that was asymptomatic, which is everybody's losing their fucking minds over, is about these like asymptomatic carriers. Well, guess what? These asymptomatic people are the healthy ones. We're the ones that have the immune system that are it's working properly. And they're worried about these people transmitting it to the quote-unquote unhealthy. This study came out where they actually exposed an asymptomatic carrier to 455 people over a two-week time span. Guess what happened? Nobody fucking got it. All 455 came out clean with all the different testings, like all the antibody testings, all the swabs, all the blood testing, you name it. Clean, completely clean. I will guarantee you that this virus is not here in march this thing's been here since like december january oh yeah no plenty of friends of mine that were taken they took themselves to the hospital with flu-like symptoms we couldn't test for it then so they just sent them home and guess what they turned out just fine i was ill in february as well very similar symptoms recovered in about three or four days I know plenty of people that have actually been tested positive for this thing and have also recovered with nothing more than a little cough. Like if you have the immune system function properly, which is a hundred percent and totally in your control, there is no government mandate that's going to tell you how to do this correctly. You're in control of it. So take some ownership of it and, and take the measures and the steps necessary to make yourself healthier. It's all within our own responsibility. Like we're not dependent on anybody. We're not dependent on these vaccines. We're not dependent on these masks. Like, and here's the, here's the other epiphany moment I had. I'm like, okay, so we're shutting down shit here in this state. We're shutting down stuff everywhere. New Jersey just came out and are mandating masks even outside, which is fucking ridiculous. If these masks, right, were that effective, like we're being told, why do we need to shut down anything? Yeah. Or if they're not that effective, like why are you making us wear them? Like pick well, and choose. You can't like, let's look at this realistically. <laughs> what they found out at one point in New York is like 60% of the people who were testing, getting sick, like, and getting tested positive for it were people who were staying at home, not going out. So it's like, exactly. obviously things are being carried places. Exactly. Exactly. Like the numbers were going to rise here in Arizona regardless. It's nobody's fault. It just happened to be an area where this decided to happen. And guess what? It's okay. It really is. And I know that sounds kind of cruel as well, but this is, this is mother nature. <laughs> like, I've had conversations with my parents who are both in their 60s now as well. And they're like, well, if it happens and it happens and it's our time, it's our time. You know what I mean? Like there's, there are measures that we can take and obviously within our own control. But at the end of the day, you can't fight the chaotic nature of mother, the chaotic nature of mother nature. <laughs> like, kind of weird, but yes. Yeah. Nature of mother nature. No, I agree. Un- unbelievable. I but agree. We'll see how this whole thing unfolds. Um, here's the best piece of advice that I think that we could all kind of live by is just keep doing you. Reality, mm-hmm. like you said, in some circumstances, you have to play the game, but. Follow the rules based on what they the are, but, but yeah, yeah otherwise. Exactly. But do the things necessary that you, that are within your control. 
which which is kind of ironic too because when this whole thing went down they went to the grocery store and it's like all every single one of like the processed foods cleaners everything was gone right and all the fruits and vegetables and healthy meats are right there. I'm like, wow, people really have no fucking clue how the immune system works. I had it's... that same thought. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> right there <laughs> with the you. current news update, but yeah. yeah. And I agree. I, I definitely know a number of people who, yeah, same thing went to the hospital or were very sick for a week or two in January, February and yeah. tested negative for the flu and said it was worse than the flu. And uh, I think it was just, definitely been here longer for sure so yeah well unfortunately we don't have the political or the wealthy power to make any of those changes so right um we're gonna have to ride this one out as best we can very true very true all right well matt's kind of close this one out we will definitely yeah. get you on here again where oh, can people to. find you how can they reach out to you if they want to hear the rest of your yeah. story <laughs> Oh God, you could, uh, so I'm very, very responsive on Instagram at rooted in movement and movement is an acronym. So it's M V M N T. And that stands for movement, vitality, mindset, nutrition, and training, because I believe that anything we want to do, whether it be moving through a pain experience or improving some level of athletic performance, it's all rooted in that movement. So, uh, rooted in movement on Instagram, you could, uh, actually, uh, email me at the same email address. So Matt at rooted in movement.com, um, new website, website is being built out, but it is functional as a landing page right now. So you want to check it out and learn a little bit more about me, um, go right ahead. But yeah, if you want to hear that knee story, it's a good one. Uh, just shoot me a message and I'll be happy to uh, send you a quick little synopsis of it. <laughs> Cliff, you know, the, the abridged version for sure. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so you guys here. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. Oh, uh, yeah, you're welcome. We'll definitely do this again. And that concludes this week's episode of Highly Functional. If you enjoyed it and found the information helpful, I invite you to head over to Facebook and join my group, Obstacle Course Racing Athlete Health and Performance, where you can both join your OCR tribe as well as find very helpful, useful information on how to become a more dominant racer, a more resilient racer, and truly race at your peak performance. And until next time, let's go out and be highly functional. <laughs>